time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. I am so excited to be here. I'm telling you, Christians that care about what's happening in the world are dangerous. And, uh, I, you know, I grew up in East Tennessee, but I came from Philly this morning. Do y'all know what Philadelphia means? The city of love, right? I mean, there's three different kinds of love. Eros love, which is where we get erotic. I won't say much more about that. But then there's phileo love, which is about brotherly and sisterly love and agape love. And so ours is the brotherly love. And, you know, sometimes Philadelphia is like that. But I can remember um, the first time one of my buddies got mugged in Philly. Most of us have been mugged in Philly. And he, he said the first time was really interesting, though, that the, the guy came up to him and he said, give me your money. And so my, my friend took his wallet out and kind of threw it at him and took off. And uh, the guy yelled at him, though. He goes, no, 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 come back, man. He said, I just want your money. You can have your wallet and all your credit cards and license back. I don't want to inconvenience you. He said, after all, this is Philadelphia, man, not New York City. And uh, so that, that's, that's our city. I, I love it most days. And, uh, but it's a lot different from East Tennessee, you know, where, where I grew up and it was like the Bible Belt. Uh, we, I was in a little town there where we went to youth group and played games like uh, Chubby Bunny. Don't ever play that game. Uh, but like we would do these different things. And, and I can remember like having this really powerful conversion experience where I fell in love with Jesus. You know, they gave an altar call and we came forward and got born again. And then like the next summer we got born again again. And then we would do it almost every year. And I, I think I must have gotten born again like six or eight times. It was awesome every time. If you haven't done it. Highly recommend it. You know, but then I started to like think there's got to be more to being Christian than just getting born again again, you know, every year. And um, I started reading the Bible and I saw that the more I read, the more I became convinced that being a Christian is not just about believing all the right stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think the things that we believe, like the bodily resurrection and the, all, the, all that stuff is so important. But the scriptures say that even the demons believe. And it says that we can have faith to move mountains and speak in the tongues of men and of angels and do all sorts of miracles and prophecies. But if we don't have love, it's nothing. And I started to realize that folks are not going to know that I'm Christian by my T-shirts and bumper stickers, but by my love, you know. And, and I, I wanted to learn how to love. And in fact, one of the scriptures that I, I read was uh, the beautiful uh, final account of the judgment, as Jesus tells it. You know, where all of the nations are gathered before God. All of us are gathered before God. And, and Jesus says, uh, we'll all be there on May 21st and we'll be, just kidding, uh, and we'll be asked a few questions by God where, uh, you know, uh, but it's very interesting because the questions that Jesus says that we're going to be asked are not just about what we believe. It's not that God's going to say, okay, creation or evolution, which one's right? You know, it's not going to be uh, virgin birth, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. You know, like, like the questions that we're going to be asked according to Jesus in Matthew 25 are, when I was hungry, did you feed me? 
When I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was uh, homeless, did you welcome me in? When I was sick, did you take care of me? The the real uh, uh, test of our faith is how it works itself out in love and compassion. And so I got hungry for that, you know, and I came up to Philly and uh, I started uh, to study the Bible. But uh, the more I studied the Bible and the more I looked at the world that we live in, I I became convinced that I had to get out and and I had to see what was happening in the world. And I I started asking myself, okay, uh, you know, who is taking Jesus seriously today? Because I read about a lot of great dead people, but I wanted to go, okay, who's, who's doing it now? And Mother Teresa was still alive at the time, and I started reading about her life, and I thought, man, here's a woman that's given it a pretty good shot, you know? And so I wrote her a letter and uh, said, dear Mother Teresa, I, we don't know if you give internships out there but in Calcutta, India, but we'd love to come work. And we waited and waited And I guess I got a lot of mail because we didn't hear back immediately. And I'm not real patient. So I just started calling some nuns on the phone, you know. And I'm like, hey, I'm trying to get a hold of Mother Teresa. You got some digits, you know. And most of the nuns kind of thought it was a prank call. But I finally got this one. And she was like, I'm going to give you a number. Don't go giving it out. And so I uh, got the number, wrote it down. I figured out I needed to call at like 2 in the morning so it would be noon in India. Good thinking, you know, and so I call, did a little research, found out it was $4 a minute. So I'm like, we'll make it quick. And uh, so I call and I'm expecting, you know, on the other line, just sort of a polite greeting, like missionaries of charity. How can we help you? You know, or something like that. And I just heard this raspy old voice answer the phone. Hello. Thought I had the wrong number, so I started talking quick. And I said, I'm calling from the United States. We're trying to get a hold of the missionaries of charity or Mother Teresa or somebody. We wanted to come work in Calcutta. Can you help me? And then I just hear her say, well, this is a missionaries of charity. This is Mother Teresa. And I thought, and I'm the Pope, you know. And then I, I, I start asking her, can we come work with you? And she says, yeah, come on out. She didn't have a southern accent, but, you know, she come on out. And, and I, I, I thought, okay. And I, my mind starts thinking logically, and I'm like, okay, where are we going to sleep? What are we going to eat? And I ask her that, and she says, well, God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows. God will take care of you. Just come on. I don't know how you argue with that. You know, so we did. And uh, a bunch of my college buddies went over to India. And, and I feel like we learned so many things, you know. I mean, we, we worked in the orphanages. We spent time in the streets. I, I lived for part of my time there in a village of folks who had leprosy. And I saw the Bible come to life. You know, I saw people love like I wanted to. And, you know, sometimes people, people uh, they go, oh, you worked with Mother Teresa. Did she shine? You know, like, well, the sister wasn't a nightlight. You know, she was just kind of this little old lady. She, she was about this tall, right? And uh, you just wanted to squeeze her, but not break her, you know. And, and uh, at the time, she was uh, just like this wonderful old grandmother. And we would go to, to uh, uh, there's one thing that I will never forget about her, though. And that's every morning we would go to prayer. And we would go into the chapel and we'd all take our shoes off and we would kneel down barefoot and we would pray uh, to, to God. And I happened to notice that her bare feet were terribly deformed. 
And I, I wondered if she had caught leprosy or something. Uh, of course, I wasn't about to ask her, you know, about it. Like, Mother Teresa, what's up with that? I mean, this, this is Mother Teresa, you know. So, but one day, one of the sisters came up and they said, have you noticed her feet? And I said, yeah. And she said, her feet are deformed because we get just enough shoes donated for everybody to get one pair. And Mother Teresa doesn't want someone to get a worse pair than she has. So she digs through all the donations. She takes out the worst pair of shoes and she takes them for herself. And after wearing the worst pair of shoes for years and years and years, it deformed her feet. And I thought to myself, what would the world look like? If we began to take this idea that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves that seriously, right? That we're to honor the needs of others above our own. I mean, it it shamed all all the short-term mission trips I had gone on in youth group where we went through our closet and we'd dig through and get all the clothes that we don't want, you know, the ones that the zipper doesn't really work anymore, you know, and we'd give them to the poor. And Mother Teresa would say, don't you dare. When you give to the poor, you give the very best stuff you own because you're giving it to Jesus in his most distressing disguises in the least of these and the hurting the oppressed in this world you treat them as if you are treating jesus because you are and i can remember uh you know sometimes you go places and you think you're gonna offer them something and a lot of times they give you much more than you'd ever uh, imagine giving them and i i can remember we uh we got to hang out with the kids and the kids taught me about that love you know we we would uh every week we would get a bunch of the the kids that were orphaned and they lived on the streets and we would we would uh, these are kids that are like eight or ten years old and completely homeless uh so they begged all day and we would get them together and we'd throw a huge street party you know and we would uh, uh, get these kids together and open the fire hydrants and blow bubbles and we'd have a big meal together. And, and one day as we were having our little party, one of the kids came up and he said it was his birthday and his heart sunk. And I could see in his eyes that he, he knew he wasn't going to get anything. And we really weren't supposed to get the kids anything, you know, because uh, there's so many of them. You're not supposed to pick favorites and all that. But, I mean, I'm a softie. So I, I like, sneak away. And I think, what, what to get this kid? But uh, it was, like, 120 degrees. So I thought, an ice cream cone. So I get him this ice cream, right? And I come back, and I give it to him off the side. And I'm like, happy birthday. And the, the kid's instinct is... This is too good to keep for myself. And so he yells at all the other kids, right? He goes, we got ice cream! And he calls them all over and he goes, everybody's going to get a lick. He lines them up and he goes down the line. He's like, your turn, your turn, your turn. You know, full circle back to me. And then he goes, Shane, you get a lick too. I got a whole, this whole like spit phobia thing going, you know? So like after a hundred kids, I, I, uh, I sort of fake a lick, you know, I'm like, awesome chocolate. He's like, no, it's vanilla, you know, but, but like that, that kid, that kid knew the secret. He knew the secret that Mother Teresa had discovered that Jesus taught that the best thing to do with the best things in life is to give them away. 
Not to keep them for ourselves. And that flies in the face of everything that we hear in our culture. Even sometimes we hear in the church with this self-centered, blessing-obsessed gospel of prosperity. It's about what we can get from God. And if you give a dollar, you'll get a hundred. And finding your best life and all this obsession with ourselves. If we're not careful, we lose the secret. Which is if you want to find your life, you got to give it away. We're made to live for something bigger than ourselves. And I look at at Jesus' words when he talks about the kingdom of God. Almost every time Jesus opens his mouth, he talks about the kingdom of God. But when Jesus talks about it, it's not just something that we hope for when we die, but something that we're to bring on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? I mean, I'm excited about the afterlife. We'll party like there's no tomorrow. And there won't be, you know, but, but like in the end, I'm convinced that Jesus didn't just come to prepare us to die, but to teach us how to live and how to love our neighbor. And it's that vision which continues to mess with me. You know, I mean, like when I was in East Tennessee, I was a good kid. I was like, went to youth group. I, I got to tell you, I was kind of like one of the cool kids. I was prom king. It was a small town. And, uh, and, and then like, I, I started reading the words of Jesus and, and, and I, I saw that like so much of the things that I was pursuing looked different from Jesus and just like our culture. And then I began to think, wow, if Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest, you should become the least. Why am I working so hard to be the greatest? You know, I started to, to, I mean, now I know that there are people out there that are like, oh, my life was such a mess. Uh, you know, I was partying around, sleeping around. Then I met Jesus and everything came together. I'm like, God bless you. I mean, I pretty much had my life together and I met Jesus and he messed me up. You know, I'm still recovering from my conversion because this command uh, to, to, to become the least, to love our neighbor as ourself, it messes with me. I mean, I look at Jesus and he's hardly ever doing anything normal. You know, I mean, he, he's hanging out with the people no one else wanted to hang out with. Uh, there's there's a one thing. Uh, theologian that used to say, I have no idea where we got the notion that Christians are meant to be normal. Christians throughout history at their best have always been holy troublemakers, creators of divine mischief, people who refuse to conform to the status quo and don't accept the world as it is, but insist on making the world what God wants it to be and loving those who Jesus hung out with. So we came back to Philadelphia, you know, inspired by the vision of Jesus and and trying to take his word seriously. And I mean, we just started this little community. You know, we read about the early church in the book of Acts. And it says that all of the believers were together and they shared everything they had. No one claimed their possessions were their own. They worshiped in each other's houses. They loved their neighbors. They welcomed the poor and the hurting. So we thought, that's pretty cool. Let's do it. You know, and we we started this little thing. And like only a few weeks in, the city of Philadelphia came in. They said, the way that you're living is illegal. And we said, well, what what law are we breaking? They said, you're breaking a brothel law. You can't have that many people living in one house and you can't have homeless folks coming in and out. And we said, we're just Christians. And they said, well, you're breaking a brothel law. And we're like, awesome. We're the first Christian brothel in Philly, I guess. But then like we, uh, 
we ended up going to court and we won in court. But it's very funny because like over and over, it, it, it seems like the, the gospel can create a collision with the pattern that we live in. And I love, um, I love this one scripture where Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God as a party. But he tells us about how we're to throw parties. And listen to these words in Luke 14. This is Jesus telling us how to throw a party. When you give a banquet, he calls it a banquet, but, you know, when you give a banquet, do not invite your friends. Don't invite your friends. That's funny. Uh, don't, don't invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives or your neighbors. If you do, then they'll invite you back to their banquets. But when you give a banquet, you are to invite the poor. You are to invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, the oppressed, the ostracized, and you'll be blessed. Uh, the, the, the banquet that is the kingdom of God has a place at the table for everybody. And maybe uh, even a special place for those that we've really uh, pushed outside. And so as we started doing that in Philly... We started to see a lot of really ugly things in our city. I mean, in the city of love, of all places, the city of Philadelphia began to pass laws that made it really difficult for our homeless brothers and sisters. Philadelphia passed laws that made it illegal to lie down on the sidewalk, illegal to sleep in the public parks. Uh, the, the, one of the final laws that Philly passed made it illegal to distribute food to homeless folks in downtown Philly. And as we looked at those laws, we said, well, what are we to do as lovers of Jesus? And, and, and we got on our knees and started praying. And then we read that scripture about the, the party uh, that invites the poor and the, 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 the outsiders. And so we threw a big party in downtown Philly where we invited all of our homeless friends. And we brought our guitars and we sang some worship songs. And then we served communion which was really tricky because you're not allowed to distribute food. So we served communion and all the police officers are standing around. They're like, I'm not arresting them. In fact, I'm going to have communion, you know? And so then after the communion, we continued the breaking of the bread by bringing in some pizzas. And, uh, that was really pushing the envelope, you know, and, uh, uh, we, we would eat the pizzas and then we started sleeping out in the park, which was also calling into question these laws. And then we did that on and off week after week. And one night while we were all there at about midnight, the police were ordered to come in and to arrest everybody there. So we were put in handcuffs. We were taken to jail and charged with disorderly conduct. I'm like, man, somebody must have been snoring, you know, and, and uh, we, we go to, to jail and, and we began to fight it in the court and people saw it on the news. And I mean, they were outraged at these laws. And so we had all kinds of people come to court to support us. But we decided that we didn't want to just be represented by a bigwig lawyer, but we wanted to be represented by one of our homeless friends who was living this struggle day in and day out. So our buddy Alfonso, who we all knew as Fonz, he, he agreed to represent us in court. So we go before the court and I have a t-shirt on in court that uh, as 30 of us or so are going to trial. Uh, my shirt says, uh, Jesus was homeless. And the first thing the judge says, he goes, come here. Jesus was homeless. Hmm. I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, your honor, in the scripture, uh, Jesus says that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And the judge said, 
you guys might stand a chance. And uh, we, we did, you know, we did stand a chance because we, we told our story and Fonzo stood up and he said, Your Honor, on behalf of the group, I'd like to say that we believe these laws that the city's passing are evil and wrong. And he sat down. <laughs> We're like, yeah, what he said, you know, and then, uh, we go back and forth. I mean, the district attorney is not amused. Uh, the, the, the prosecutor, she in court, I accidentally called her the persecutor one time. I was like, get that right. But, uh, she, uh, she is like throwing the book at us. I mean, she wanted us to go to jail and serve time. She wanted us to pay thousands of dollars worth of fines and check this. She wanted us to have hours and hours of community service. Don't make us feed the homeless. Besides, it's illegal. You know, but we, we go. And, uh, and as we go before the court, uh, the judge says this. The judge says, you know, what's in question here is, is not whether or not these people broke the law. It's very clear to me that they broke the law. What's in question is the constitutionality and the rightness of the laws that we're passing in this city. And the district attorney said, no, 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 that's not before this court. And the judge shot back, that's before every court. If it weren't for people who broke the unjust laws, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have. That's what this country's built on from the Boston Tea Party to the Civil Rights Movement. He said, we would still have slavery, he said. And he, he said, these guys are not criminals. They're freedom fighters. And I find them all not guilty on every charge. That was a good day. And, uh, you know, you kind of read that when, uh, uh, Paul, you know, in Acts, when Paul and Silas went there in jail and jail cell flies open. We're like, yes, Lord. You know, it felt like God uh, was, was with us and in that struggle. And that struggle continues. I mean, just this year, there's another little congregation, a little Christian community around the corner that's been welcoming homeless families into their building and letting them sleep there while they're trying to find housing. And uh, the city came in. They said, no, 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 you're not owned right to be a shelter. You can't have a shelter here. And they said, well, we're, we're just a church and this is what the church does. And, uh, uh, the city said, well, we're going to shut it down because you're not licensed to have a shelter here. Now this was a Pentecostal group. You don't mess with the Pentecostals, you know? So they like started praying. They said, we will, we, we'll meet with you later. And, uh, they came back and the city said, have you thought about what we said? And they said, yeah, we've, we've thought about what you said and we're not going to run a shelter. But we're going to have a revival every night. And it's going to start at 8 o'clock. And it's going to end at 8 in the morning. And it's going to go every night this year. And it might go longer than this year. And, uh, and they said, if you want to try to shut down the revival, we dare you. I'm telling you, that, that revival's still going. And uh, I, went, I, went, I went to it one night. It's, uh, it's great because they had like two hours of worship. They had people share their testimonies and stories. And then we had communion together. And like at, at about 10 o'clock, they said, all right, that concludes the formal part of the revival. For the next eight hours, we'll have silent meditation. Have a good night, everybody. <laughs> but I, I think it's that kind of creativity that we need in this world because our world is far from what God dreams of it to be. And that's why I think Romans calls us not to conform to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? To have a new imagination when we look at the world that we might dream, what would it look like if the kingdom of God came? 
What would it look like if the kingdom of God came in Colorado Springs or in Uganda or in North Philly? And so we start to look at things differently. We start to see people differently. And right now in in, in our little world, I mean, we've got almost one homicide a day, one kid killing another kid a day. And so we're, we're trying to teach kids, you know, to, to think differently about violence because of what Jesus did. And we look at Jesus and we see what love looks like when it stares evil in the face. And it says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's that grace which uh, uh, our world that's so riddled with violence, I think, needs so bad. You know, and that, that's why, like, I love, one of the, the cool things about living in Pennsylvania is we got the Amish, you know, who know a little something about what it means to be a counterculture. I mean, you know, they're, they're a little peculiar, you know, the Amish. And I mean, but you can almost hear their kids growing up going, Mom, why do we dress like this? You know, and then being told, well, because we're a little different. We don't think that our beauty comes from what we wear, but from who we are. So we don't need name brands. We just dress very plainly and we let our light shine in other ways. And we don't want our clothes built on the backs of sweatshop children. So we make them ourselves. I'm not sure if they say all that, but I hope they do. You know, and uh, like, you know, then you you can hear the kids going, well, uh, but dad, why don't we drive Cars, horses are so 1800s, dude. And, uh, and them being told, well, because there's all kinds of problems associated with the, the cars and the pace the world goes. So we live a little differently in the world because we have a different story and we live in, in different ways. And, and I got to tell you, like, like, in light of that, maybe it's not so surprising to see how they responded to the terrible act of violence that they experienced. Do you remember this? Just a few years ago, uh, a, a deranged Madden man came into their school and killed a bunch of their kids and then turned the gun on himself and killed himself. But the response of the Amish caught the whole world's attention. The first thing that they did was they went to the shooter's family and they said, Is there anything that we can do for you? You must be really upset. You lost your daddy today. And then people began to pour out money to the Amish families. And they took that money and they created scholarships for the children of the shooter. And then as the funerals rolled around, they went to the funeral of their own kids. But then they went together to the funeral of of the one who killed their kids so they could be with his family, so that they could lament with them their loss. I can remember when that happened, I was speaking in Australia. And Australia is not particularly like a religious country, very kind of post-Christian. And and yet, like, there's not a lot of good uh, headline news stories about Christians in Australia. But what made headline news when that happened was amazing grace. Why would they do what they did? And they did what they did because they're a different kind of people. And I think in, in, in light of what Jesus has done in the world, it causes us to be a different kind of people, a peculiar people, a holy counterculture, people who see the world differently. And it's in light of that that we, uh, uh, we, we wrote this book, Jesus for President, and we got a little section called Amish for Homeland Security. <laughs> Because we go, what if we had responded like that after September 11th? You know, what if we had the imagination of the cross in a world of guns and swords and bombs? And so as I was praying and thinking with my community, I got to go 
over to Iraq because I became convinced that what, what's at, at stake in Iraq right now is not just the reputation of America, but the reputation of, of our Christianity and of our faith. And, and, and I wanted to go over just simply to say, hey, God loves you. I love you. No matter what my country does to your country, I want to be with you. So in March of 2003, I got to go over to Iraq. And just to flash back a little bit, March, I didn't know at the time, but as soon as I got over there, the shock and awe campaign started. And so the bombs started to fall on Baghdad and I lived in Baghdad. So I saw some of the most horrific things I've ever experienced in my life. I can remember going to the Amaria shelter, which was filled with women and children. They didn't even allow men into the shelter because they wanted women and children to have priority. It was filled with women and children when two smart bombs fell on the roof of it and they killed everyone inside. I can remember seeing the the fingernail marks on the walls as folks tried to get out. So those things haunt me. But what I also saw in Iraq is a God whose love and whose grace is more powerful than bombs and more powerful than all of the ugly things that we do to one another. It was there in the middle of Iraq that I got to go to worship services with other Christians. And there was this one worship service where there were thousands of Christians from all over Iraq and the Middle East that had gotten together uh, in the middle of the bombing to pray for peace. And so as they got together, we sang Amazing Grace in Arabic. And the bishops all came forward and they read a statement from the Christian church, all different denominations. And they said, this is to Muslim people. And they read this statement that said, we want you to know that we love you. And we believe that you are created from the same dirt of this earth that God breathed life into. That we come from the same dysfunctional family of Abraham and Sarah. We want you to know that we love you. And then they led us to the cross. And they said, this cross doesn't make any sense to the smarts of smart bombs. But it's this cross that teaches us to love our enemies. To pray for those who hurt us. And we were, I was just so moved. I was like... I had tears rolling down my cheeks and I got to meet with one of the bishops afterwards. And I said, Bishop, I got to tell you, I didn't expect this. I never knew there were so many Christians in Iraq. And the bishop was, he was very gentle with me, but he goes, yeah, son, this is where Christianity started. <laughs> he said, that's the Tigris river and that's the Euphrates. Have you heard of them? Garden of Eden down the street, you know, and uh, he, he said, you guys didn't invent Christianity in America. You guys just domesticated it. He said, you go back and you tell the church in North America that we are praying for them. We are praying for them to be the body of Christ, to, to live out the love and the grace of the cross. And those words echo in my soul. And I, I'm reminded, you know, some 40 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King said, these are extreme times that we live in. And the question isn't whether or not we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hatred or extremists for love? And I think the world has seen enough religious extremists for hatred 
Don't you? I mean, Jewish, Muslim, Christian. We've seen Christians that blow up abortion clinics and dance on the doctor's graves. We've seen Christians that hold signs that say, God hates fags. Christians that burn the Quran. That sick Christianity, if it's even Christianity at all. And yet I think that there's a whole generation in the church right now that's longing to be extremists for love and for grace. Amen? That we want to go into the world. And use our faith to engage the brokenness of this world. I tell you, one of my favorite stories is that story uh, of the feeding of the thousands. You know, where like, um, it's an incredible story. You should read it tonight. But just to paraphrase, like, you know, there's all of these hungry people. And all of these hungry people around them, the disciples. And so they come up to Jesus. And one of the disciples says, Jesus, there's a bunch of hungry people. Do something. And Jesus' response is awesome. He goes, you do something, feed them. And immediately the disciples' head starts to spin, you know, and they're like, oh, where are we going to find enough money to do that? You know, like, where, how, where's the nearest supermarket or Walmart? Like, you know, they're still thinking like with the logic of this world. And, and Jesus says, what do you got? And the story goes, you know, there's this kid that's got a few fish and loaves and he offers it up and Jesus takes it and adds a little God stuff, you know? And like before long, like thousands of people are fed and there's baskets left over. Like what an amazing story. And I love it because that little kid got to be a part of the miracle. And for some strange reason, God doesn't want to change the world without us. For some strange reason, like Jesus could have turned stones into bread. That was one of his temptations. And yet he uses this little kid's lunch to feed thousands as if to make sure that we get to be a part of the redemptive plan in the world. And that's what you guys have done with the... um, the, the, the stories that were told where you took your offerings and we lift them up to God and we say, you know, here, here you are. Because a lot of times I think it's easy to see all of the pain, the poverty, the wars. And we go, God, why don't you do something? And if we listen close, we can hear God say back, I did do something. I made you. We are to be a part of the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, to have imagination with our lives, to imagine what would happen if we gave our broken pieces to God. God will do something. I mean, I get so excited because like I get to meet people everywhere that are doing really cool stuff. And like I met this, um, this group of ro- robotics engineers <laughs> and I'm like, that's awesome. You make robots. How cool is that? You know? And he's like, yeah, we used to, uh, some of us got this, because, this kind of work because we want to make money doing it. But then we started to think, why has God given us these gifts? And then they told me their story. And they said, now we've got a whole group of robotics engineers that are putting our minds together. And we're working on how to build robots that can dismantle landmines so we can send them over to Afghanistan. And they can do the job that little kids are getting their fingers blown off. Uh, doing that they can disarm fields and landmines so kids can play again in Afghanistan. How cool is that? You know, and I, I think of this other group of, of folks that like, uh, one of my buddies in Philly who's a scientist and he began to understand that one of the deepest crises in our world is lack of access to clean water. And as a scientist, that messed with him, you know? So he started studying the bacteria and the water stuff. And then he met this group of uh, business people. And they're like, you wanna hear something even worse? In the industrialized countries, we spend enough money on bottled water 
that if we just reallocated that money, we would be able to provide water access for the whole world. And so what they did was they started a bottled water company where they basically bottle tap water. And by basically, I mean, they bottle tap water, you know, and they sell it at festivals and concerts and stuff. And then all of the money that they make goes to dig wells with indigenous labor. And every bottle of water on it, it says, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And it's, it's that kind of creativity you get to have with your life. You know, I, I mean, like, how many of y'all get asked, what are you going to do when you grow up? I get asked that all the time, don't worry. And I, I just got to go back to my, like, my uh, high school reunion. Um, I don't know, like 15, 20 years I've been graduated. Oh. And, uh, and, and, but on, on the little alumni report, I had to fill out, fill out this survey that said, what is your occupation? I started thinking, wow, trick question, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, I'm trying to love God and love people. So I just wrote in lover. And uh, (laughs) now I'm I'm listed as a professional lover in my alumni book. But I think, like, at the end of the day, we are created to be agents of God's love in the world. And the real question is not just what are you going to do when you grow up, but who are you becoming? How do we become a part of God's movement in the world? And so not just am I going to be a doctor or a teacher, but what kind of teacher or doctor am I going to be? How do I seek first the kingdom of God in the imagination of the spirit to live in this world? And so every once in a while I get to meet people, I'm like, Man, I wish I had, I had a tape recorder to, to catch this. And uh, there's this one kid, I'm going to show you his story because I think it's an inspiration to me and maybe to you too. It's a kid named Mark Weaver that grew up in a culture a lot like uh, many of us. And yet he read the words of Jesus and it transformed his life. Check it out as we, we close. Watch this. While I was in California, I started reading The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. It's my twin brother, Rick. He sent me a copy of the book. And as I was reading it, I was totally inspired and I was feeling convicted inside living in one of the richest communities in America, in Orange County, California. And I was part of these mega churches. I wasn't living as selfless as I could be. And would you really give all your possessions away, sell them to the poor and follow me? And I was challenged and convicted. Would I really do something like that? But I kind of shrugged it off. I was like, well, I really don't even have any possessions. But the next day, some of my friends came to visit me from Indiana and California and they wanted to go get on the show The Price is Right. Here it comes from the Bob Parker studio at CBS in Hollywood. We got in line and they actually called my name up. And Mark Weaver, come on down. The actual retail price is $14.49. Mark, you're a winner. Mark, you're a winner. 60, Bob. 60. He's going to try 60. We're looking for the back of the car. And there it is. $17,260. I'll shake the hand of a winner. You have to beat 85 cents to get into the showcase, and you did it. You will be in the showcase at the end of the show. With his new range. In romantic Paris. Of a brand new convertible! $6,192. Mark is the winner. I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown on the prices right. I won almost $60,000 in prizes. I won two cars, a trip for two to Paris, a stove, and a rug. It was really cool. But then I remembered the words that Shane wrote in his book, so I decided to sell the two cars that I won on the show right back to the dealership. 
and I used the money to fly to Uganda, Africa, and I just decided to live in an orphanage for a while and just give all the money away to them. Mark lived in is for children who lost their parents to AIDS. For each one of these beautiful children here, two people died from the AIDS epidemic. Nothing ever felt better than to just give away the money rather than to keep it and get something for myself. I've never been without a meal. I've never been without a shirt on my back. Stuff like that is the least I could do. And if everybody gave a little bit like that, I think this world would be a better place. We'll be right back. You know, what's, what's incredible about Mark's story is like, what he did, he doesn't think is extraordinary. It just makes sense. If we think with the mind of the Spirit and see with the eyes of Jesus, it causes us to look at the world differently. And when he did that, it didn't just bring life to kids in Uganda. It brought life to him. And I think that's the real secret is when we live for the kingdom of God, it brings us life as much as it brings anyone else. At one point, someone asked Mother Teresa. They came up and they said, I couldn't do what you'd do if you paid me a million dollars. And she said, I wouldn't do it for a million dollars either. I'd do it because it's what I'm made for. And we're made to live for the kingdom of God, for Jesus. We're made to preach the gospel, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. And I am convinced that the gospel spreads best, not through force, but through fascination, through little people who are transformed by God's love and live differently in the world because of it. And so I want to pray with you. I want to pray, you know, some of you, you may have uh, been a believer for a long time. You may be one of those folks like me that, that's been a believer, but you haven't really followed yet. You know, you, you've believed all the right stuff, but your life is just sort of, uh, look the same way it did before. And I, if that's you, if you, if you want to stand today and say, I, I really want to follow, I want to invite you to stand up because I'm going to pray for you. And I just want to say, this is a safe place. You know, if you can't stand up in here, it's going to be hard to stand up out there. This is a place where we know that, that we, we've got to uh, be born again, that we're broken people. And I, I want to pray with you right now. Oh, sweet Lord, in the book of James, you say to us that true religion that is pure and faultless is to care for the widow and the orphan and to keep ourselves from being polluted by this world. And I pray for these folks who are standing now that you would give them the eyes to see pain, that you would give them 
the courage to follow the selfless love of the cross. Surround us with people who dare us to not conform to the patterns of this world. Pray that for for each of these folks that you would move them closer to the norms of your kingdom where the first are last and the last are first, where the hungry are filled and the mighty are cast from their thrones. Make us into people who live into that dream. Thank you, God, for your love. Amen. Amen. I want to just close by saying, you can be seated, by saying this, that it's always important to remember that this is not about us or all the great stuff that we can do. I mean, God is really good at using broken vessels, you know, like David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, well, you read two chapters of the Bible, he pretty much breaks every command, you know, like, and yet he was a murderer, but God used him. Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist, but God redeemed him. And God can use our broken people. God can use our scars as much as our gifts. And in the end, this is about the world coming to know how good God is, not how good we are. I heard one pastor say, we need to take a cue from the donkey that rode Jesus into the Passover festival. He said, that donkey might have started to think a little something about himself. You know, as he saw all the people lying in the streets and shouting Hosanna, and he might have been like, that's not my name, but what? You know, and uh, people waving their palm branches. That, That donkey might have started to strut. But this pastor said, that donkey had to realize it wasn't about the donkey. It's about the one who was riding the donkey. We're just the donkeys that get to bring Jesus in. But what a beautiful thing it is that we have a God, that we have a God that wants to live through these broken hands, through these broken hands. Let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. Won't everybody stand together and we'll close with this because it's a a prayer that captures Jesus' heart as he teaches us to pray. If you don't know it, just listen to it. It's beautiful. Let's say it together if you know it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did. Because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.